Our scripture this morning is from Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 36. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 36. The heading in the ESV Bible is the death of Jesus. Uh, We're not going to quite read up to the death of Jesus. We'll read that next week. The title of the sermon is Darkness and Dereliction. Dereliction is an old word meaning abandonment. It's what happens to Jesus on the cross, and theologians of old often referred to these words of Jesus from the cross that we'll read here as the cry of dereliction. And so that's uh, where that word comes from, what that word means. Mark 15, verses 33 through 36, hear now the holy, inspired authoritative, and perfect Word of God. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Thus far the reading of God's own word. Let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit's blessing upon our study of it. Our Lord and our God, we come now to Your Word, knowing that Your Word brings life. Father, we want to live, and so it is our prayer that by Your Word this morning, You would impart life to Your people. Help us to see as we study Your Word what we just sang that all we truly have in this life and before you is Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Dear congregation, what happened on the cross? What happened on the cross? The cross. What took place in those six hours that Jesus hung there on that hill called Golgotha? Do you know? The scriptures tell us. Second Corinthians five twenty one says, "God made him who had no sin to be sin." For us. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Isaiah 53 says, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what happened on the cross? Well, well God, he, he took our sin and He placed it on His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in order that our Lord Jesus Christ might suffer the punishment that we deserve because of our sins. I like what the Belgic Confession says. It says that on the cross, God uh, made known His justice toward His Son, who was charged with our sin. As I've said before, God is the master accountant. God can take the sin that is in your account, in my account, and He can put it into the account of His own beloved Son. And that is what God has done on the cross. He took our sin and He placed it on His Son. He put it in the account of His Son. And the Lord Jesus Christ then, being covered with our sin, endured the full weight of God's just and holy wrath against our sin. Believe it or not, in those six hours that our Lord hung upon the cross, He suffered the punishment that would have been yours and mine for all eternity. That's what we mean when we say that Jesus suffered the full weight of God's anger against our sin. He suffered the punishment that would have been yours and mine for all eternity. Of course, this is why our Savior had to be not only man, but also God. Because it's only as God that He could do such a thing. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus bore the punishment before God that our sins deserve, and He bore it fully, and He bore it completely, and He bore it to such an extent that there is nothing left whatsoever for those who are in Christ by faith, but goodness and grace and mercy from the Lord. As we turn our eyes to the text, we're going to see that this is what the darkness declares. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ confirms And it's what the people around the cross fail to perceive. So first, this is what the darkness declares. We read in verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Just a few verses before this, in verse 25, Mark told us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. The third hour would have been 9 a.m., and now we're told that when the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So Jesus is crucified at 9 a.m., and then at noon, darkness comes over the whole land, and this darkness lasts for three hours until 3 p.m. And so for three hours in the middle of the day, when the sun is highest and brightest, There's darkness over the whole land. Now, let's ask some questions about this darkness. First, how dark was it? How dark was it? Was it it dark as night? 
Was it, was it dark like it gets when a thunderstorm first rolls through? You know, the leading edge of the thunderstorm often makes it very, very dark. We don't know. The gospel writers do not tell us. This much we can infer, however. It was dark enough that people noticed it. It was dark enough that Matthew, Mark, and Luke each tell us about it. It was dark enough to cause people at noon to stop, look around, and say, whoa, it's dark, and to cause people at three to stop, look around, and say, whoa, the darkness is gone. Second, how extensive was this darkness? Mark tells us that there was darkness over the the whole land. The Greek word translated land can also rightly be translated earth. And so though we can't say with any certainty, the Greek certainly leaves the possibility open that this darkness was felt over the entire earth. And honestly, it, it seems fitting to me that as the Son of God hung on the cross, this darkness would have been felt over the entire earth. Again, we don't know for sure. Third, what caused this darkness? What caused this darkness? Some have suggested a thunderstorm, because as we said, when a thunderstorm rolls through, uh, it often brings with it some level of darkness, but as we know, thunderstorms rarely last for three hours, uh, and even then, thunderstorms don't usually create darkness over what might be called the whole land, and... Still yet, if it was a thunderstorm, why didn't the gospel writers tell us a storm came through? They weren't afraid to tell us when there was a storm, were they, on the Sea of Galilee? Others have suggested a, a, a windstorm, a Sirocco storm, I think, is or a Socorro, I can't remember the exact word. It's a storm that blows in off of the Mediterranean Sea and, and whips up dust from the desert and, and really makes a, a dust storm, a, a sandstorm. But uh, those who are familiar with the geography of the region say, you know, those things don't really take place in the spring of the year when Jesus was crucified. More than that, those things aren't really known to cause a whole lot of darkness, Still others have suggested a solar eclipse is what caused this darkness. Uh, The main problem with that, however, Linda's my science wizard, Linda Corp right here. She's going to know this right away. Linda, can you have an eclipse during a full moon? No. New moon. I really put you on the spot right there. Sorry. Yes. Passover took place during... You would have got it with a little bit of thought. I know you would have. I know you, Linda. Uh, Passover took place during a full moon. And an eclipse cannot happen, a a solar eclipse cannot happen during a full moon. A solar eclipse can only happen during a new moon. And so that really only leaves us with one explanation for this darkness, and it's that this darkness is supernatural. This darkness is something that God brought about, and there really is no scientific explanation for. That leads to the fourth question, why? What is the meaning of this darkness. Well, as is often the case with signs and wonders in the New Testament, the Old Testament helps us understand them. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that God's judgment against sin is often accompanied by darkness. We remember well the 10th plague that God sent upon Egypt. It was the culmination of his judgment upon the Egyptians for their sins. The angel of death visited the land at midnight and struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt who hadn't taken refuge behind the blood of the lamb. 
And yet before that, that tenth and final plague, there was the ninth plague. And who remembers what the ninth plague was? I think you see where I'm going. It was darkness. It was darkness. And that darkness in Egypt was meant to tell the Egyptians that the curse of God rested upon them. And the judgment of God was about to be poured out upon them. And then we turn to the book of Amos. And the book of Amos says this in Amos 5.20, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it? And then again in Amos chapter 8, verse 9, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Now that prophecy from Amos 8 is certainly being fulfilled here at the cross. But again, it's, it's judgment accompanied by darkness. Zephaniah 1, 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Throughout the Old Testament, darkness often accompanies God's judgment. And then even, even as we turn to the New Testament, we see, we see hell, which is really the culmination of God's judgment uh, against sinners, hell is described as a place of blackest darkness in 2 Peter 2.17, right? And so, throughout Scripture, God's judgment is accompanied by darkness, and it's illustrated by darkness. Of course, the marvelous thing about this darkness that settled in while Jesus hung on the cross is that it testifies to the fact that the curse of God and the judgment of God rests on the Son of God. It should rest on Jerusalem, right? It should rest on the Roman Empire. It should rest on, on the world. I mean, I mean, we crucified the Son of God. God's judgment here should rest on the human race. But here on Golgotha, it does not here, the judgment of God and the curse of God rests on our Lord Jesus Christ, who has taken our sins upon Himself and is bearing the punishment and the judgment from God that we deserve. William Hendrickson says, did the darkness have any meaning? Yes, it did have a very important meaning. The darkness meant judgment. The judgment of God upon our sins, His wrath, as it were, burning itself out in the very heart of Jesus, so that He, as our substitute, suffered most intense agony, indescribable woe, terrible isolation. Hell came to Calvary that day, and the Savior descended into it and bore its horrors in our stead. Friends, this is what the darkness declares. Secondly, this morning, this is what our Lord Jesus Christ confirms. We see this in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the fourth of seven words or sayings that Jesus spoke from the cross. It's the only one of the seven sayings from the cross that Mark records for us. But in this fourth saying, Jesus is simply confirming what the darkness declares. And it's that on the cross, He is suffering the wrath of God against our sins. 
He is bearing the judgment and the condemnation that we deserve. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. That's the consequences of our sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin, sin removes God's countenance from us. Sin makes it so that we cry out to God and we get no answer. And that's exactly what Jesus here is experiencing on the cross. Our sin has separated Him from His heavenly Father. And we must understand, and I hinted at this earlier, even said it outright earlier, I guess. We must understand that, that in this moment, Jesus is at the nadir of his sufferings. He's at the lowest point of his sufferings. In this moment, when he is forsaken by God, he is in the blackest darkness of hell. He will descend no further. He can descend no further. There's no other way to say it, but in this moment, Jesus is damned. And there's great mystery here. Great mystery. Jesus is the beloved Son of God who, who, has, who has known perfect, eternal, blessed fellowship with God the Father from all eternity. Yet here on the cross, he is forsaken by God. And make no mistake, Jesus didn't just feel forsaken like we sometimes feel forsaken. No, Jesus truly was forsaken by God. And there's profound, profound mystery here. There's much about this that is, that is just too wonderful for us to know. Much about this that really just doesn't fit into the categories of our sinful minds. The Son of God, forsaken by God. How can this be? A.W. Pink says, This was a cry which made the very earth tremble, and that reverberated throughout the entire universe. What mind is sufficient for contemplating this wonder of wonders? What mind is capable of analyzing the meaning of this amazing cry which rent the awful darkness? Why hast thou forsaken me are words which take us into the holy of holies? Here, if anywhere, it is supremely fitting that we remove the shoes of carnal inquisitiveness. Speculation is profane. We can only but wonder and worship the Son of God, forsaken by God. There's great mystery here. There's also great insight here because it shows us really what happened on the cross. It, it, it shows us what was involved in Jesus dying for our sins. It, it shows us what was involved in His, you know, taking up our infirmities and carrying our sorrows and being pierced for our transgressions. And what was involved is far, far, far more than just physical suffering. No, it, in, it included, in fact, we might say really more than just included, it was, it was, it was almost entirely spiritual suffering. Some have suggested that Jesus, Jesus might have forgot about his physical suffering because his spiritual suffering in this moment was so incredibly intense. And make no mistake, it is the spiritual suffering, it is the suffering in Jesus' soul at this moment that separates Jesus' death from the death of anyone else who's ever died. 
But friends, make no mistake. This is the wages of our sin. What happens to Jesus here is the very thing that God owes us as sinners. Sinners deserve to be cut off. Sinners deserve to be abandoned by God, forsaken by God, in both body and soul forever and ever. Yet the wonder of wonders is that Jesus here, Jesus here, the one who is perfectly righteous in every way, Jesus here is getting what we deserve. And this teaches us the great gospel truth that that the reason we get heaven is because Jesus took our hell at Calvary. The reason we're we're forgiven is because Jesus was forsaken on the cross. We sang that earlier. That's true. The reason God welcomes us to himself is because Jesus was cast out. The reason. You ever thought of this? Sunday after Sunday, unless I forget it, which I do sometimes, I give you a parting blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and turn his face toward you and give you his peace. I still think I screwed it up right there. But anyway, bless, make, turn. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And may He give you His peace. Have you ever thought that the reason God can turn His face towards you and give you His peace Sunday after Sunday after Sunday is because He turned His face from Jesus, our sin-bearing substitute, on that Good Friday afternoon long ago? That's the only reason. There's great insight here. There's also great counsel here. And this fourth saying from the cross, Jesus is, is drawing on language from the Old Testament. These words come from Psalm 22, verse 1. Now, in one sense, right, we understand that the whole Old Testament is ultimately about Jesus, and it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so, and so, so we know that these words from Psalm 22 were always more about Jesus than they were about David who first spoke them. And yet in another sense, we, we, we should recognize how Jesus used Scripture to, to sustain his faith and to encourage his faith and to give voice to his sorrow in difficult times. You might think of when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. He turned to Scripture. We might think about when the Pharisees questioned Jesus about how him and his disciples were observing the Sabbath. Jesus quoted Scripture. We might think of how when Jesus was, was pondering the hatred that the world would have for him and his disciples, he quoted scripture. And how now when he hangs on the cross, and as he endures the deepest possible suffering, he quotes scripture. And actually he quotes scripture twice from the cross. The fourth saying is from Psalm 22 verse 1. The final saying I think is from Psalm 31 verse 5. It is from one of the Psalms, if that's not correct. But, but the fourth and the seventh sayings are, are both from Scripture. And in all this, there's great practical counsel for the people of God. In all this, we see something of what we should do in times of great difficulty and hardship and uncertainty. We should, we should, drill, we should draw from the, from the well of Scripture and bring the words of Scripture to bear on our life. Of course, to do that, we need to know Scripture, right? To do that, we need to have Scripture stored up in our heart. And I was kind of pondering this the last week. I've actually been pondering it for the last couple of years. But the, the older generations used to sing psalms in worship. Uh, 
we don't really sing psalms a whole lot anymore. Occasionally we'll sing a psalm, but we don't sing psalms too often. We have, you know, fancy new songs, and although these songs do generally communicate great truths, if they didn't, we wouldn't sing them. I do sometimes wonder, you know, if something is lost in not singing those songs that really contain the exact words of Scripture. Uh, my brother Mark Ebels texts me often about how, hey, pastor, I woke up this morning and, uh, you know, number 100 from the old blue psalter was going through my mind, and, and he's talking about Psalm 100 and those words that he learned as a child and how they were going through his mind and how, and how these words would come to him in times of, times of need, right? And, and, and so I think sometimes that's lost on us in, in that we, you know, don't sing the exact words of Scripture and the songs that God gave us. Uh, but we need to know Scripture because, because as Jesus shows us, Scripture is something we should be able to draw on in our time of need and in times of suffering. And I must say that the dearest saints I have known, the most godly people I have known, they have all had one thing in common. They could readily draw on Scripture to express their emotions, and to encourage their faith in God. That's what Jesus does from the cross. He's in the deepest possible agony and suffering, and yet by faith, he draws on the words of Scripture to give voice to his suffering and to encourage himself in the midst of his suffering. And he does encourage himself here, doesn't he? What are the first two phrases of this saying? My God, my God, those are words of faith. The remarkable thing about Jesus is that, that God has abandoned him, but he has not abandoned God. But he turns to Scripture to keep himself faithful. There's great counsel here. Finally, there's also great comfort here in this word because sometimes we feel forsaken by God, don't we? Sometimes we feel forsaken by God, and that was certainly the writer of Psalm 22's experience. That's why he wrote in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as Jesus takes the psalmist's words on his own lips here, this is what we need to remember. What the psalmist thought he experienced, Jesus did experience. And so it is in our lives. There are times when we feel forsaken by God. There are times when we could just as easily make the words of Psalm 22 our own. Perhaps some of us here this morning are in one of those times now. We feel forsaken by God. Well, if so, remember this. What you think you're experiencing, Jesus did experience. And more than that, Christian, because Jesus was forsaken by God on account of your sins, you never will be. You get that? Jesus' words here really put a floor under our despair. Life can knock us down, but we can only sink so low. Because eventually we get to the place where no matter what happens, God will never leave us or forsake us. And the reason He won't forsake us is because He forsook His Son on the cross. You might feel forsaken today. But feelings can't always be trusted. Feelings lie. And so when you're tempted to believe God has abandoned you, you call to mind this fourth saying of your blessed Savior from the cross. And you remember. You remember that because Jesus was forsaken, you never 
will be. So on the cross, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. This is what the darkness declares. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ confirms. Finally, this is what the people around the cross fail to perceive. Look at verses 35 and 36. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus' fourth word from the cross was spoken in Aramaic. That's why you see it written the way you do in your Bibles, because the gospel writers, they record it in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and then they interpret it for their readers uh, in Greek, it would have been from Mark, and, and our Bible translations put that then uh, in, in English. But, but Aramaic was, was the common language in Jerusalem at this time, and so it's hard to believe that the people standing around the cross uh, didn't understand what Jesus said. It's true that the Aramaic word Eloi bears resemblance to the name of the prophet Elijah, It's also true that Jews believed that when the Messiah came, he would be sort of assisted by Elijah, and that Elijah would have a part to play uh, in the work of the Messiah. And so whether these people truly misunderstood Jesus, or they're just mocking him here, we don't know. This much is clear. The people do not get why Jesus is dying on the cross. They don't understand that Jesus is suffering and dying on the cross for their sins. He is bearing the wrath of God for them. Someone standing by, however, does appear to take some level of pity on Jesus, for we're told that someone someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, and he put it on a reed, and he gave it to him to drink. Now, at first glance, giving a crucified man sour wine appears to be cruel, doesn't it? But in the ancient world, sour wine was actually a refreshing drink. In fact, Greek and Roman literature never speaks negatively about sour wine. Sour wine was sort of like a, a cup of cold water. It was, it was uh, known to, to quench thirst. It was very cheap. It was said to be something which day laborers often went looking for after a hard day's work or the soldier uh, wanted you know, after a time being on patrol, okay, sour wine was, was really a good thing that really quenched thirst in the ancient world. And so, in all likelihood, there's really nothing hostile or wicked about this man's giving Jesus sour wine to drink. In fact, in fact it seems to me that there's some level of sympathy in this man's action. Matthew tells us that others standing around uh, kind of get after this man and tell this man to leave Jesus alone. It seems that perhaps the others standing around didn't appreciate this man's sympathy. But I do think in this man's gesture of giving Jesus this sponge full of sour wine, I think we need to see some level, maybe not much of a level, but some level of sympathy. To some degree, this someone, whoever he was who ran to get a sponge filled with sour wine. To some degree, he feels sorry, it seems, for the man on the cross. And make no mistake, congregation, this is is one of the ways 
even today, that people fail to perceive what happened on the cross. They look at the man on the cross and they feel sorry for him. They look at the man on the cross and they take pity on him. This is, in my estimation, what happens to most of those who watch Mel Gibson's movie, Passion of the Christ. They get done watching it, and sure, they might be moved. Perhaps they have tears coming out of their eyes. But it's not because they trust in Christ. It's because they feel sorry for Christ. They watch, they watch the movie, and they see this poor man falsely accused and mocked and beaten and put to death in the cruelest of ways, and they, and they feel sorry for him. They're crying for the same reason my boys cried watching Air Bud last night. When the dog gets hurt, they feel sorry for him. And yet, here's what we must understand. The gospel does not call us to take pity on the man on the cross. You'll, you'll notice that the one who takes pity on the man on the cross, he does not get his name recorded in God's Word. He's just a someone, and ultimately, a no one. He's overshadowed by Simon of Cyrene. He's overshadowed by the centurion who we'll meet next week. He's overshadowed by Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome who stand at some distance. He doesn't get his name recorded. He's just, he's just, he's just someone who ran and filled the sponge with sour wine. The gospel does not call us to take pity on the man on the cross. No, the gospel calls us to trust the man on the cross. It calls us to believe that the death he died, he died for us and for our sins and for our salvation. The darkness that shrouded him for these three hours should have been the darkness that shrouded us for all eternity. His experience of being forsaken by God should have been our experience for all eternity because of our sins. And yet, and yet, it's His experience. The death He died, He died for us. As our sins were taken out of our account and placed into His account. The gospel doesn't call us to pity the man on the cross, but to trust Him as our Savior and as the one who reconciles us to God by His precious blood. Of course, the reason we trust the man on the cross is because he's no longer there, right? It's Catholics who like to keep Jesus on the cross. They're the ones who have the crucifixes. We don't because he's no longer there. He's paid the penalty our sins deserve. He died and he was buried and he rose again from the dead on the third day and he's, he's ascended to heaven where he is even now seated at the right hand of God, and from where he's offering mercy and forgiveness and salvation to any and all who will give their lives to him by faith. Sometimes people will say to me, Pastor, I just don't know how I can be forgiven. I mean, I've done some horrible stuff. You have no idea the things I've done in my life. And generally people say this because they have within them some sense of justice. They know 
that they deserve to be punished by God for what they've done. And so they don't see, they don't grasp how God could be holy and just and good and forgive them for their sins. But here's what we must always remember. God doesn't ignore sin. God doesn't close an eye to sin. No, God pours out His just and holy wrath against sin. But He does it in two places. God's wrath on the believer's sin is poured out on Jesus, who suffered hell in our place. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was being forsaken for your idolatry and my idolatry. He was being forsaken for your immorality and my immorality. He was being forsaken for our greed and for our lies and for our covetousness and so on and so forth. That was our sin that he was being forsaken for. God pours out his wrath on the believer's sin on Christ. God pours out His wrath on the unbeliever's sin in hell. It's as simple as that. God does not close an eye to sin. And God is not closing an eye to sin when He promises you forgiveness and mercy and new life in Christ. But you must trust Christ. You must, you, must, you must turn away, right? Our lives by nature walk this way, in, the, in this way of sin and self and, and worldliness. We're servants to these things. You must turn away from this way of life, and you must turn to Christ. You must trust Christ. You must believe with everything you have that the death He died, He died for you and for your sins and for your salvation. My friend, the darkness declares it. The Lord Jesus Christ confirms it. The people around the cross don't perceive it. May God help us not to do the same. May God help us trust the man on the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Father, help us to be people who trust in Christ alone for salvation. Help us also to learn from your word this morning. In times of great distress and suffering, help us us to take your word upon our lips, to, to give voice to our sorrow, and to encourage ourselves in the faith. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
Dear friends, the Lord turned His face away from Jesus on the cross in order that I might give you now this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen.